Dr. Paul Granello is a founding partner with the Ohio Department of Mental Health in establishing the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation. He is currently the recipient of a sizable grant in federal funds for suicide prevention under the Garrett Lee Smith Act. Dr. Granello also conducts research on psychotherapy outcomes and the psychological and social characteristics of individual well-being. He has co-authored three books on the topic of suicide and is currently writing a book on wellness counseling for Prentice Hall. He is currently a member of the Ohio State University Campus Wellness Collaborative. He joins us today. On our show, we do these roundtables where we talk to numbers of teens all at once, and that's something they all consistently say, which is, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody anything if I can help it. They'll say, I'll tell somebody, but then they'll go over lists of reasons why they're not going to tell anybody. This is a bad message, you know, I mean, especially when it comes to mental health and suicide. When I go into schools or, and I go into agencies and I work with people, and the message is really simple. It's get help for yourself and get help for a friend. You know a friend is having serious problems. Because 90% of adolescents tell someone before they kill themselves. 90%? 90% of adolescents tell someone before they kill themselves. This is not, you know, everyone says, oh, it's out of the blue or whatever. It's not. It's undetected and inappropriately treated depression is what we're really talking about. And, you know, that's complicated by other factors in, you know, in terms of family problems and, and substance use and access to weapons and that kind of stuff. But we're really talking about untreated depression and anxiety problems. And that's a real shame because those are two of the most treatable categories for mental health that we can help people with. Now, one, one of the things that we hear all the time is we don't have a lot of ability to do much as teens, young adults, in the face of other adults who are kind of, to some extent, they, they are our keepers. They make the rules. And I don't want to do something that's going to kind of make them limit me even more, cause me more problems. And that's one of the reasons they don't tell. It seems to be the penultimate question. How do we trust that treatment actually does work? Why should they go out on a limb, I guess? Well... You should go out on a limb when it comes to mental health and suicide because would you rather lose a friendship or lose a friend? You know, I mean, right. once you make an error, if you don't err on the side of caution, you're going to have a dead person. Mm -hmm. And that's tough because if you colluded with them, if you kept a secret when you knew that they were hurting and that they were depressed and they were thinking about suicide, if they complete that or have a serious attempt even, then you're going to feel a lot of guilt. You're going to feel responsible, too. And, you know, there's contagion in adolescent populations where if you have one person complete suicide, and then you'll have other people feel responsible for that. So you should never collude with somebody around suicide. It's even, you know, professional mental health people, they're required by law to report. If somebody is dangerous to themselves or others, we have to disclose that. It's not a confidentiality thing because if somebody's suicidal and you don't do anything about it, then you can lose someone, right? right? If somebody's not suicidal but you think they are, well, there's a cost for that too because in a way that may use up resources and that may affect your relationship with that person. 
But what's better? Is it better to use some resources and deal with the relationship fallout, or is it better to not have that person around anymore? Right. No. Right. The, right. the answer here is, yeah, yeah, the, it's not easy. Uh, if it were easy, we wouldn't have the stigma, we wouldn't have the problems, we wouldn't have that. And I think a message I've been trying to get across to friends of people who are concerned about someone is to be gently persistent. Right, right. And, you know, you go up to somebody and you say, how are you doing? They're going to say, fine. You know, because right. in our world, we don't really mean, how are you doing? Most of the time, we right. just mean, hello. Right. Uh, but say, no, no, really, you haven't been showing up for practice or you look like crap, you know, what's going on? And push it a little bit and just be gently persistent. And if the person says, no, no, I'm fine, you know, whatever, then say, okay, well, I was just concerned about you, and if you want to talk sometime, I'm around, you know. Let the person know that somebody cares about them and what's going on. Right. It's really sad that even when people do disclose that they're feeling suicidal or whatever, most of the time they're ignored. And so we've got to take it seriously and be open to hearing about it. Now, one of the things we hear a lot is, I don't know when my friends being serious or how serious this is. Is this something I should truly be worried about? How do I probe? What do I ask? What do I do to find out if this is really as serious and bad as it seems? You have to be willing to go there. That's the number one thing. I mean, most people, when they bring up the topic or whatever, their friends change the subject or ignore them. And so if someone brings it up, even in a joking way, you need to say, hey, is that a serious feeling that you have or you're just messing around? Or, you know, Most adults and most people have had these feelings at some point. It's normal for adults to think at some point, you know, oh, maybe things would be better or easier if I weren't here, that kind of stuff. But it's another thing to really begin to entertain the idea. And most people who are thinking about suicide don't want to die. What they want is the pain they're in to stop the sort of psych ache that they're in. They want that to stop. And so that's the really good thing. If we can identify people and get them help, usually we can help that person find other ways of solving problems and other kinds of coping strategies and, and things to get through situations rather than feeling so overwhelmed that suicide begins to look like an option. The issue is if you have a friend and you're concerned about them, there's the need to be persistent and to take an interest. And even if the person doesn't say, oh, yes, and, you know, whatever. I mean, at least they know somebody cared enough to ask them. Now, you said uh, substances were sometimes involved. How, how, did you get a sense of how often they were involved? Most adolescent male suicide, particularly the guy has used alcohol within three hours of completing suicide. Really? Three hours? Wow. Yeah. Typical scenario is, They've got a whole bunch of problems going on in their life, like maybe there's family problems or academic problems and stuff, and their girlfriend breaks up with them in a public way. They go to baseball practice or something, the coach kicks them off the field, sends them home for having tobacco, right, for having chew or whatever. Kid goes home, drinks a six-pack of beer, and shoots himself. Hmm. That's a true story. Yeah. So what caused the suicide? Was it the getting sent home from baseball practice? Was it breaking up with a girlfriend? Or was it the whole depression and issues going on with the background? So the answer is yes. 
there were distal stressor, you know, factors going on in that person's life, and there were immediate or proximic stressors that were going on. And then when you consume alcohol, of course, that impairs your judgment, and you have access to highly lethal means like a gun, then you have a completed suicide, so then we have a dead boy. One interesting thing, you know, just looking at the demographics so far, was I didn't find any difference between rural kids, suburban kids, urban kids. It's the same across all settings, which was very interesting, you know, because we tend to think of inner city kids having more problems, but, you know, the literature says that, but that's not the case. Right. We had kids in urban and suburban and rural places just as much as anybody else. And also was interesting, we had higher hit rates for mental illness among minority kids, among African-American or Hispanic kids for mental illness, but the highest suicide rates were the Caucasian male mm-hmm. uh, kids. So yeah. when a Caucasian male kid is in distress, they're in high distress. Is there any sense of why that would be? I, I don't know, you know. I mean, again, I think it gets back to cultural stuff about people are supposed to be able to handle situations and what is the kind of support mechanisms that they have. But apparently white males, when they do have emotional problems, mental or emotional problems, they become very highly stressed about that and more suicidal than other minority populations. Hmm. So that makes sense in a way because most completed suicides are white males in the general population, like 72%. Wow. I know for adult women, they tend to attempt suicide more. Is that Did you find that to be true for the adolescents? That's true about the adolescents, too. But the, the adolescent girls ideate more. They think more about suicide, and they plan for suicide more, and they attempt more. And the only thing the males do more is complete. And that probably, again, has to do with the method of choice, you know, in terms of suicide attempt. But, yeah, the females are higher on every indices, um, and yet their completion rates are not as high as the males. A number of years ago, they did a lot of research on parsing out that there were some forms of anger that men displayed, which were actually masked versions of suicide. Uh, Did you find anything like that in your study? I haven't gone that far yet and you know, in terms of drilling down into the data. Mm-hmm. But I mean men are much more likely to act out in hostile ways. Whereas females are more like physical aggression, whereas females are more likely to do what's called socialized aggression. They're more likely to talk behind somebody's back. They're more likely to do things that are emotional attacks on people, verbal attacks on people than actual, you know, physical violence. But that stuff can be very damaging to people, obviously. I mean, in, a, in today's day and age where you have the ability to distribute mass slander uh, <laughs> by uh, Twitter, Facebook, right. or whatever, I mean, you can do a lot of damage. You can hurt somebody pretty bad if that's your objective. One of the things we found just in, with depression in general we talk about is the importance of not isolating yourself did you find anything about people being alone or generally away from other people when they were committing their suicides? Yeah, I mean, that's a typical pattern for depression is withdrawal. And again, I want to get back to that and say that depression is what is, is, is this is all about. And it's unrecognized 
and untreated or inappropriately treated. The treatment of choice is an antidepressant medication with cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Okay. That's the, that's the standard of care. Now, what happens is, is that people go to their GP, they go to their general doc, they get put on some kind of medicine, and the doctor says, well, I'll see you in a month, or I'll see you in two months. Right. But that is not the way that you treat depression, particularly for adolescents. Right. And, you know, it should be a prescription from a doctor and therapy appointment and seeing the doctor in a week, at most a week, follow-up, because medication has an energizing effect. It's going to physically energize the person before it starts to address emotional issues. And then medication isn't the long-term answer. I mean, the long-term answer is learning how to cope differently and think about things differently so that you don't maintain depression. One of the things we hear from various teens, and this relates to your comment, is we hear, you know, my parents don't believe in all that stuff. And so I, they won't let me go see a therapist. They won't let me do this treatment. What is somebody to do at that point? I mean, that, that's a very common thing we hear. That's the stigma. You know, and I've had parents who have said to me things like, I don't know why my daughter killed herself. We bought her a horse. I mean, like, what does that have to do with anything? Right, you right. Know? Or, oh, he doesn't need mental health care. We'll just take him to see our minister. That's fine, and that's okay to take somebody to see their minister. But hopefully the minister is someone who's going to encourage the family to get appropriate professional mental health care. So this is the stigma, right? If the kid had a broken leg, would the parents say, oh, no, we won't get the kid put in a cat, you know, we won't fix a broken leg. But because it's a mental health problem, you know, your brain is an organ in your body. And you had other problems with organs in your body, you would get treatment for that. And this is the same thing. But we have a tradition, you know, we have a stigma around people getting mental health care. So this is the issue. I think if you're a teen and obviously you're underage or whatever, it's tough to fight that battle. I mean, especially if you're the depressed person. You know, depressed people don't problem solve well and they don't always advocate for themselves well. But if there is anybody that will listen to you, either a, a teacher or a school counselor or another family member, an aunt or an uncle or whatever, to try to get somebody on your side to talk to your parents or advocate for you getting appropriate care. And there are some agencies, and it varies state by state, but most mental health professionals can even see an underage kid for a couple of sessions before they need parental consent. Hmm. So, you know, you might be able to go walk into an agency and say, look, I need some help, and then get that person right. to work with you to advocate for your parents for care. If somebody wants to follow your study, where would they be able to do that, and how can they get in touch with you? Well, the easiest way to get in touch with me is Granello, G-R-A-N-E-L-L-O, dot two at OSU, Ohio State University, dot edu. And I'm on my email every day. So I will certainly, if people have questions or want to know more about it, I'll be happy to respond to emails and that kind of thing. 
in terms of following the study, what we are doing now is we're working with SAMHSA, which is the federal agency, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, that is in charge of these research projects and publishing some best practices. So there'll be some information coming out on the SAMHSA website and just SAMHSA.gov. And that's probably the best way to follow what's going on in suicide research right now is at the SAMHSA website. Yeah, and remember, you know, if you or somebody you know is suffering, uh, they don't need to be, and it's important for them to get help for themselves. To get help.